Welcome to the Million Hours Podcast. I'm Keith Jones. In this edition, we hear from Duncan Ross, who went from merchant banking at the highest level to the back streets of Calcutta and other major cities worldwide. Duncan tackled the same challenges many of us face in our 50s. Most importantly, after your first career ends, how do you figure out what to do next? This is an inspiring story of reinvention. On an uncharacteristically windy and rainy day in Mallorca, Duncan spoke to Mike McDowell. My first job was actually painting council houses in South Wales um, because I did a development economics degree uh, and I never really thought about what I was going to do next so I ended up painting council houses in South Wales um, which is relevant because I've never really thought that I have planned very much in my life and so um, when I left university, my future wife lived in South Wales and I went and lived with her and got a job painting council houses, which was interesting because it's the best economic education I've ever received because, and this is a bit of a digression which you can edit out later, because the council used to put the houses out for tender uh, at about £200 a house. And we used to paint them, including all materials, for about £28 a house, which taught me about margins and the fact that somebody was making a lot of money, but it wasn't us. And the people who suffered, actually, were the people who lived in the houses who got a really very shoddy job because you can't do a proper job for 28 quid a house. And, um, anyway, Can I so ask, what year was this? This was 1976. So that's, what that, that's where my career began. Um, and it is relevant for another reason, really. So, but the, I realised that although I started at the top of the ladder in my career, because I did the gutters, you cut that out as well, <laughs> um, it really wasn't a career. And so I found my way to Japan. It's it's quite a leap from painting council houses in South Wales to yeah. Japan. I did skip over interviewing for the regional director, sales director. No, not regional sales director, that's ridiculous. I, I, for being a salesman for Walker's Crisps in Cumbrown area. And I think that was a bit of a catalyst because I thought, not while I like crisps very much, I thought that's perhaps not a career move. So um, was that basic pay plus commission plus all the crisps you can eat I, I hope so right did you not get I, the job I didn't get the job oh so um, I can't actually remember whether I withdrew or they didn't offer but one way or another it was a bit of a catalyst to make me think well maybe there's something else so um, which is part of my not thinking about what I have to do in my life because quite um, privileged up upbringing and my father was working for Shell, and he worked for Shell all around all over the world, and uh, causing mayhem as he went. So he was kicked out of Indonesia. He was kicked out of Indochina, as it was then, kicked out of Indonesia, kicked out of Nigeria, and then went to Japan, which worried a lot of people. Um, but he was in Japan, so 
painting houses, I got enough money to buy a ticket and went to stay with him for a while. And that's when I got my job in the finance world. So I joined a development finance organisation. It wasn't quite a bank. I uh, didn't have a banking licence, but it was investing in developing Asia. So we were investing in Taiwan, in Korea, in Philippines, Indonesia and so on. And it was all about promoting private sector development in Asia. At a time, actually July the 4th, 1977 was my first day of work um, with this organisation. At a time when it was pre-Asian economic miracle, so at a time when capital was in short supply. So I did that and I joined them, um, probably largely through my father's connections and nothing to do with any of my um, existing or nascent skills, really. Uh, so, I, um, so that's where I started. So I started working with development finance. It took me to live from Japan to Korea, uh, to Singapore, back to Korea, and then ended up in London. And then I joined a, um, a merchant bank. Um, because at that, by that stage, we had created the economic miracle that was Asia, and there was no need for a development finance organisation anymore, and we were selling it. And in the course of that, um, the merchant bank asked me whether I'd go and work with them in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, which was the bank? It, it became a little bit more famous later. It was quite a... Um, a traditional, uh, it was the Queen's Bankers at that stage, it was Bearings, Bearing Brothers, which became more famous in uh, no, no, 1995, the beginning of 1995, um, when a Mr. Leeson mm -hmm. yeah. and others conspired to sell it for a pound to a Dutch bank. Yeah. Um, that's, that's also cutting Were you out still there? Steps. No, I left a year before. Um, and I have some views about that too, which may be relevant, but I found it, there were two sides of the Bering group. One was Bering Securities, mm -hmm. um, and one was Bering Brothers. Bering Brothers was the Queen's um, banker, mm -hmm. very blue blood, um, traditional. Right. Right. And Bering Securities um, was a new brokerage operation, uh, actually based in Asia, where really grew out of Asia, and extremely successful, very profitable. And what they were trying to do at the time was to create a thing, a Bearings Investment Bank, mm -hmm. to compete with the growing, emerging American global investment banks. And so they were jamming these two things together. So there was the Blue Bloods on one side and the Cowboys on the other, mm -hmm. and they were jamming it together. And, it, uh, and I highly unusually had worked for both so I'd gone from one to the other and back again which is very unusual and um, uh, to be honest I found it quite it, it, it wasn't a comfortable place um, so I was quite happy to leave mm -hmm. and so I joined a Scottish merchant bank called Flemings um, which is very much like the Bearings but obviously being Scottish more careful with its money mm -hmm. and so it didn't go bankrupt um, and but, and indeed sold itself to Chase Manhattan Bank, who mm. bought J.P. Morgan to become Chase Manhattan, J.P. Morgan, Bank One, etc. Right. Uh, and huge, you went... And I went with it. With it, So yeah. I moved jobs about three times or something. Just to cut in, very, at this point, children have arrived or begun ah, to Ah, in the arrive. middle of this, um, yeah. it, it, while I was at Bearings, um, 
uh, first daughter arrived. Yeah. Uh, which actually delayed our move back out to Japan to join Boeing's. Mm-hmm. Um, Boeing's, I have to say, were really excellent organisation to work for because they looked after people um, back in the day. So my wife got pregnant and we had a child, so they just delayed our move until Charlotte had been born and we got used to her and then we moved out after. Yeah. Um, and they were very good. And so we went to Japan and then uh, Beth and Maddie arrived in Japan, which is why Maddie has a red stamp on her foot, which says made in Japan, <laughs> which is her tattoo, <laughs> which she hid from us for three years. <laughs> it's uh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, which I thought was brilliant too. Why she hid it and felt the need to hide it. Goodness only knows. Anyway, yeah, so we had three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1990, that's when uh, the girl's mother got sick. Mm. So she got leukemia. And again, Barry's absolutely amazing. Just said, come home, booked us on the first class next flight back to London, straight into the Marsden. Mm-hmm. Um, an unhappy, you know, sad ending in that Orphea didn't survive. Um, but they really just took care of us. They were very, very good. Um, and then we decided to go back again. It was, yes, um, lots of people said, oh, you, you should come home. You should really go home. You, you know, you want to be back, you know, amongst your, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in your home. And it took me a while to realize they were absolutely right. But the home was in Korea, which is where my job was, where our house was, where the kids' family were, I mean, friends were. Yeah. Um, uh, that's where our house was, everything, you know. So. So we went back. So you took your three so young so girls. Three, three, three young girls and Annie the nanny. Okay. And Annie. the youngest of the... Th- Maddie was how old at this point? Uh, so they would have been two, four, six, I well, guess. Gosh. Yeah. Travelled halfway around the world with six, four and two-year-olds. That is that is remarkable though, right? It sounds Well, if it. you see, it's odd. It's I don't think so. It's, it's <laughs> just <you>. normal. <laughs> it's normal. Um, and that, yes, keep coming back to that. Thing about do you think about things? And That's something about really. your mindset, because to most people that is a really big deal. Mind you, you were returning, as you say, to your house, but nonetheless, nonetheless. Anyway, so we are we're in the nineteen nineties. So we're in the nineteen nineties. You've moved to Flemings, and you are now at J.P. Morgan. Not yet, not yet. I'm sorry, I'm quite old, so it's quite a long story. So, so I, tried to, I did leave. You did tell me to fill it. That's so, true. It's so, true. The fact that you're quite old is significant. But sig- let's, yes, let's, let's come to that. We'll get to that. We'll later, get yeah. to that eventually. Um, so, so we're we're, we're the '90s, and then I came back to London with the girls, mm-hmm. and with a view, I suppose, actually a little bit of planning, a bit of thinking. Um, unusually, because I felt for them, dragging them around the world, um, it's, it's got great, there's fabulous advantages of all that, and it's interesting and mm. exciting. But maybe having roots and knowing where they live and knowing who they are and where they belong, all, all those sorts of words, uh, might be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we came back to London with a view to sort of do you set down roots? Do you grow roots? Do you anyway thingy roots with roots? Okay. And um, but you've got to establish a establish life. a lifestyle yeah. in the, yeah. and and, and um, you know all those um, 
the networks and support mechanisms and family and my mum and uh, dad were getting older and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, so yeah. It's, it made some sense to come back. So we did. What so year then are that we? We were in now 92. Was it 92? Yeah, it came. Mm-hmm. 1992. Yeah, came back in 92. End of 92, that's right. Because had to get the girls into school. It was quite tricky getting girls into girls' schools in London. Um, in mid-year as well. And right. not in the, you know, And I had no idea about... 11 pluses or 13 pluses or the fact that girls have different entry periods of boys and into schools and right. all that stuff and so it was all a bit of a mystery but managed to get them into school which was good um, and had a couple of years with bearings well actually less than a couple of years which as I say I didn't like and then joined Flemings mm-hmm. in 94 nine, just in time um, I told them to clean out my drawers and uh, bearings went bust um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, then with Flemings and then I stayed there and I suppose two things happened quite quickly at that stage one I met my now wife my second wife mm-hmm. so I met Robin on December the 27th no it was 28th no 20th anyway, one of those days right uh, in 1997 okay um, and we should, we should give a li- because it's such a remarkable story, and it is a remarkable story. We should give a little bit of the background. Okay. Do you want to tell it, Robin? Robin was in a similar situation. Well, the, the sort of lead up to it was that um, I had managed to meet a couple of young ladies in the ten years that I was single, um, and in London my subsequently best man said to me you know you really need to find somebody appropriate <laughs> what <laughs> what did he mean i have no idea what he meant okay. obviously but i think he su- he was suggesting that perhaps i should be thinking longer term planning big sense of i don't know what he meant i don't know what he meant right really um and um that was relevant because his wife and the wife of two um, mutual friends of Robin and I uh, kept inviting me to dinners. Yeah. And um, eventually they said, <clears throat> which I of course always went to, and eventually they said, it's not, we're only inviting, we don't like you much, but we're only inviting you because there's yeah. somebody we want you to meet. Right. And of course she's m- much nicer than you and therefore has a social uh, calendar and therefore she's never turned up so here's her number right and then they phoned Robin and said the reason we keep inviting to these things is to meet this bloke Duncan um, but he turns up and you don't so would you mind if we gave him your number and she said I may be desperate but I'm not that desperate right yeah so n- don't and they said well actually maybe too late uh, we think he might call you and apparently 20 minutes later I did Right. and in order to get me off the phone she agreed to meet me Yeah. and it turned out we had quite a lot in common uh, we were at school in similar areas of North London so we grew up actually within miles of each other not, not that we knew that mm-hmm. um, and more recently uh, Robin's husband had 
uh, died of a melanoma, and she had three sons. Mm -hmm. And they were one, four, and six when their dad died. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we met, it was quite difficult not to introduce the children um, if we were going to see any more of each other. Mm -hmm. And so they met, and of course they bonded. Yeah. And because um, I uh, have met this absolutely remarkable family, so you, you've been together twenty, and a little bit years now. Uh, Nineteen and most actually. Okay. Years. okay. So yeah. August the sixth. Okay. Which I mustn't forget. No. Actually. Gosh, we should make a note. <laughs> make <that> a note. <laughs> so twenty years, and you, you got married, and you raised. The, your three daughters and Robin's three sons as one big happy family and they yeah. are a big happy family yeah they, they would hate that expression actually they would um, uh, and we raised our six children so yeah. we did in fact adopt each other's children which is slightly bizarre because you, okay. right. you have to uh, relinquish your parental rights in order for somebody else to adopt them so there was a moment when we we had to re relinquish our rights to our children to re-adopt them. So I, I adopted all six and Robin adopted all six. Okay. Yeah, um, which was, that doesn't even make sense when I say it, but that's I think what happened legally. Yeah. And it made, made makes you think a little bit. And um, But it's, the, the children hate being described as two families. So we sometimes use the Brady Bunch example. We were two families and we were two. And, um, they hate it. They they just see themselves as one family, one and family. which is amazing. They're incredibly um, strong, mm -hmm. and will defend each other to the death. And uh, yeah, you know, the, anybody's threatened or needs help, the the wagon circle, and, and yeah. they, they they call together. It's it's, and they, well, actually, they look alike. So Robin says the only child that she's ever said that she looks like is Maddie. Um, <laughs> who's not a biological daughter. <laughs> and they're a little short of genetic link, yes. But you must pick up facial expressions and mannerisms and I, I what have you. I don't know. So. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so the youngest, anyway. uh, um, Alistair is the youngest, and yes. he's 21, he's 22. 24. 24, so right. So they're now 24 to 34. So they started off at, you know, whatever it was. When we got married, probably 3 to 13, I think. Yeah. And now they're, uh, Yeah. well, that makes sense. So let's, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. Let's wrap up the career bit. So you ended up as managing so director of JP Morgan in the Asia Pacific region. Yes, that's right. So right. I was based in Singapore. So I went to, um, Flemings became part of Chase and Chase became, you know, and then we were part of JP Morgan when I was in Hong Kong and then went and lived and worked for three years in Singapore. Yeah. And uh, that's where, yeah, so that's, that's where I finished. With it. So I was uh, a managing director of JP Morgan and um, went to New York to uh, have, be polished uh, when I became a managing director. So there was a, a, a polishing ceremony where you have your brain removed and, um, right. uh, yeah. And um, you taught how to speak the right phrases and uh, yeah I, th I think they must have made a mistake <laughs> no so we did we went to new york and there were two thousand so two hundred thousand people i think in the organization yeah. two thousand managing directors so yeah. so it wasn't a, a really exclusive club but um we we all 
terribly proud of ourselves, I think. And so we all went to New York. It was very uh, strange um, event, as it turned out, because we were at this... Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's some funny noises going on in the back. Yeah. I should explain, we are sitting on a windy rooftop, uh, actually a windy roof terrace, and it's it's much more breezy than it normally might be, and the neighbours are coming and going, so probably uh, you would have heard in the background a horse and cart go past just a few minutes ago, and that was a little revving motorbike, I think, and the various bits and bobs, mm. snipping of hedges, and it's a, it's a Sunday morning in Mallorca. So... Managing director at J.P. Morgan. At what age were you when you retired? I was that? fifty-one. Yeah, fifty-one. Oh, really? You were fifty-one when you retired? I thought you were a little bit older than that. That's quite young to retire, right? It is. It is. Um, although at the time it didn't seem. I, I felt quite old actually, because it's quite a young um, industry. And um, I think it's, it may have got older since, if you see what I mean. It's not just because people have got older. But at the time, I think there were young thrusters in the, in the sector a lot. Right, yeah. And I think maybe there's been a bit of a move back to, to, to an older More generation. More common sense. Well, I don't know about that. But yes, possibly. Yeah. And, um, but at the time, and particularly I was in the equities business, and um, it was... Um, yeah, I was I was one of the older people. So at the time, a because I felt old, mm. you know, fifty something, you start feeling a bit old and thinking about these things, and b because in that world I was quite old, yeah. or relatively old. The so reason I didn't feel 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 so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt. The, I mean, the reason I have asked you about all of your background is because you, I mean, you ended up with six children, mm. right, by a um, slightly different route. But so you retired relatively young but you had plenty to do you still had six relatively young children at that point six or so up to 16 and that that's enough to keep somebody busy and also you I don't want to pry into your financial affairs but presumably had a reasonable pension from JP Morgan and didn't necessarily have to work and yet and now we finally get to the point and yet you have founded an organization, I'll let that motorbike go past. You have founded an organization, Street Invest, a children's charity that works in numerous countries around the world with thousands of children and a great many mentors who help these kids. And that keeps you busy practically 24 hours, a, well, it, not 24 hours a day because you're here in Mallorca now, but you're not here in Mallorca very often and you work a lot of hours. So why? What? Why? Um, Is it? Was it a calling? Why? Tell uh, me about well, why it's so important to you to have a purpose in life beyond your family. Hmm. So what? The, I've never thought of it in terms of purpose, in the sense that I didn't think this is what I have to do. This is, you know, I'm trying to achieve something for myself, or it kind of evolved. So I'm not that thoughtful about it, and that's why the polishing didn't work because I can't speak clearly but so when I left um, the investment banking world there were a number of things one of which was that I really it didn't sit well with me 
some of the excesses that people talk about in the investment banking world, some of the damage that subsequently became clear it was doing to the financial world and, and so on. Um, and it always slightly puzzled me how I got there in the first place, but it didn't set, sit well with me. And that's not to criticise it, it's just, um, and, and I only can do what I do now because of it. So it's not to, yes, it's not, not to criticise that world particularly. You make it sound like you wanted well. to make amends a little bit. A bit, and go back, and certainly there was a decision to go back to my development which, roots, which is why I go all the way back to the first financial oh, yeah. job. Sure. And that's, so it was about doing something that you could see or, um, and I used to have big, big discussions, well, when I say I used to have, I remember one at least, um, talking about what is the value of investment banking? And what's, what's the point, what's it for? And my very good friend argued very passionately that this is the most important thing. It, the free flow of capital is what makes the world go around. It's the most important, it's the most creative, it's the most um, wealth creating, job creating. Without it, the world would be a, 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 a poorer place in all senses. Which I'm prepared to go with um, in the sense that we need financial systems and that's helpful. But for me, it was a long way away from anything. And so when I was in the development finance world, I used to see float glass plants being built and um, uh, oil tender being launched and things. So it was much more... Yeah. Um, Things to which me, your loans, loans that yeah. your company had underwritten, yes, had and, and invested in, and uh, so yeah. on, and they were being created. So I could see that, and for me, it was much more important and much more connected, and maybe connected to people. I don't know, but anyway, it was it was more um, about the those real outcomes. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I can. Yeah. So I, I, when I ended up at JP Morgan, and you know huge organization and I thought I want to go back to my development roots and I'm not quite sure what that is but there were certain criteria so children because I had a lot and I thought actually mentally I, I'm, I'm more pitched to the younger mind I'm not sure I've completely grown up really that's <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by that uh, childish perhaps anyway so children yes because um, there were lots of them uh, international because I've been around the world all the time and small because I've probably had enough of huge um, and so I ended up um, and, and various of my I knew a few people had gone into the charity sector and they were recommending me for jobs with big charities and I, had, I knew nothing about the charity world so I thought well, what can I bring and then I went for an interview with one job and I got on the seven o'clock train and I went up to London and I got on the tube and I, I thought, what am I doing? You know, I've, I've, I've just given up something and here I am about thinking about running a department of 70 people and I have to confess that it went through my mind at a fraction of the income that I have just come from. Yeah. So. So, so there was a lot of selfishness around this. That it was about, um, and I, we have had little conversations, some conversations separately, um, 
and it is about me, and I will come back to that, I suspect. But So I was looking for something small, children, international, and I came across a small organisation which was run by a, um, a very inspiring person who worked with street children. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it was about that mix of things that really um, was the catalyst for another 12 years of non-retirement. But something, um, possibly just a mixture, was compelling enough for me to end up founding Street Invest. And it's become one of the most important things to me. And I, why? I think it's because of the children. Because we work with street children and people have views about children who are street connected and they vary between poor children you know victims hopeless homeless dirty poor thirsty hungry barefoot kind of view to hoodies gangsters druggies trouble you know the kids you see on the corner of the street and you kind of walk around and we have a hug a hoodie moment some years ago as well yeah. you know that sort of image whereas actually when you meet these young people they are amazing um just so strong so brave so resilient so responsive mm. always up for something um street smart all those words and so and th- these these kids are amazing and yet they are the young people who are given the least opportunity. Mm. So they need the most, they're given the least, and have the most to offer. Yeah. Um, And so I suppose I've just ended up feeling that I need to do something. And as I say, whether that's it, or whether I'm just a stubborn old bugger, and actually it's all about me, and I want to succeed, Mm -hmm. I don't know. But the net result is that done it as you say more or less full-time for a decade or more yeah Um, and that's that's what I do so what's the purpose I don't know what is the purpose is it about making me happy is it about giving me a sense of fulfillment is it about leaving some kind of legacy Uh, is it about thinking that you know there's a story which I've told you before which about Robbie and meeting Robbie. He's the first um, street child I kind of remember, not the street child I met, but one that's image is indelibly um, imprinted. Uh, and he, he was in Kitway, on the streets of Kitway. And he had been on the streets of Kitway for three months. And actually, I don't really know much about Robbie and I don't know his story, but he, was wanting to go home, come off the streets and go home. And there were two workers from the partner, our partner, out there who were there for him to help him go home. Mm-hmm. But the thing about him was that he's just like number two son, Andrew, who's, um, you know, he's, he, he's the smaller one of our family. He's, um, he was the same age, 13 at that stage. And um, as, as I've said before, the same damn Manchester United T-shirt. Um, and I thought, well, what's the difference, you know, Robbie and, and my son? Mm. And um, 
and it's just so unfair, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you think, what can I do? Can I do something? I must be able to do something. Hmm. And um, so that was in 2006. So that was one year after I retired out of JP Morgan. And, and I suppose Robbie's stayed there. Um, and one of the things, unlike our co-founder, who was the guy who inspired me into this world, and you know, I looked behind Robbie and I, I saw a huge long line of Robbies because there are millions of young people everywhere um, with similar-ish challenges, yeah. um, generally let down by the people they should be able to trust, mm. so adults. So it's our fault, mostly, about young people ending up on the street for a whole host of reasons, you know, some of them just economic development, some of it's family breakdown, some of it's abuse, so it's, it's all from passive to active yeah. Um, uh, causes for these young people and so I thought well not only have I got to do something for Robbie but I've got to do something systemic which is going to reach lots of Robbies mm. and um, so is it the fact that Robbie may not be on the street anymore always having a full life on the street or as having a better life or is better equipped to manage his own life which is actually what we we, we aim to achieve uh, or is it that I just feel a bit smug and better about myself because I've done a bit of, you know some of these things I don't know so it's it's not really possible to encapsulate mm. the purpose in one glib sentence is it because it's it's multifaceted it's many things uh, yeah I think that's it's a whole other life you have mm. created for yourself S Essentially, you've reinvented yeah. yourself. No, I mean, you're still the same person, but you see what I mean. You've, you've kind yeah, of, it's I, kind I, of a reinvention. It's, it's really, uh, and I find it interesting that when I talk to my former colleagues, my old, my friends, and, and they say they ask, tend to ask me the two same questions. One is, how can you afford it? Well, I think the answer to that is, don't have racehorses or yachts, or, <laughs> or many wives, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> so, you know, we live an amazing life. Um, but it's not a hugely expensive life, I yeah. think. Um, or it could be a lot more expensive. So, so re relatively frugal. And um, if you if you retire early, make sure you get your pe pension early, which was very important. That, that's, a, <laughs> that's a critical critical thing. So, uh, so the first thing was how do you afford it, and the second thing is how did you know what to do? And so the implication is that a lot of my friends, former colleagues who actually don't know what to do next. And going all the way back to the beginning, neither did I. I mean, I never imagined this mm. Street Invest and this charity world and, well, let alone anything else, as we sit here on this terrace. But um, uh, I don't, if somebody had asked me what I was going to do, I couldn't have described that. But on the other hand, it emerged and I did it, you know, I, I suppose it's the only thing I feel reasonably proud about is that I've taken, you know, I haven't been afraid to take those opportunities. Yeah. You know, going back to six children, you know, or three children on an aeroplane, you know, dragging them back to Korea. Maybe it's foolhardy, but maybe it was just the thing to do. And so we did it. So it, it, it emerged. And um, and yes, so, so it's a new thing which if I had, if somebody had asked me when I was 50, 
would you what what are you going to be doing when you're 65 I can't imagine that I could have given a remotely close description <laughs> of what, where I am doing what I am yeah. on the other hand um, there may be some elements amongst it which is I didn't want to be bored I did want to do something quotes useful and useful must mean different things to different people yeah sure. you know whether it's gardening or street children yeah you know, or sport or whatever so there's probably that um i wanted to keep things international so there, there are lots of things in there i wanted to spend more time with the kids mm -hmm. which i managed to do they may or may not i think i could have spent more time i don't know but um certainly there was a lot more of their involvement and they are incredibly supportive of what i do as well mm -hmm. i think I probably think they they're more supportive of me as a working with street children than possibly working as an investment banker I should think we should I should explain actually street invest which people can find at streetinvest.org you are the CEO and you work with how many thousands of children around the world well we work with partners around the world so there are now 67 partners um, organizations organizations yeah. uh, because they're all the experts in their local context so we yeah. work in Asia we work in Africa we work in a little bit in Central America and we're trying to work in the UK um, so always through local partners because they know the local context but all based on the same principles um, mm -hmm. which is around what I have discovered is called rights-based child-centered approaches to young people who are street connected what it means is um, actually respecting young people and as the experts in their lives and promoting, helping them in whatever way we can develop and grow to their full potential. Yeah. So it's not about us telling them what to do. I was going to say, in layman's terms, and do please correct me if I'm wrong, you don't waste time weeping and feeling sorry for these kids, nor do you tell them that they need to be in a proper house or in school or go to a hospital or contacting a social services or any of those things at all you don't tell them what to do at all you respect their decisions but you do provide them with a responsible and trustworthy adult to talk to whenever they need to talk to that person is, is that essentially that, that, it? that's exactly right it's which brilliant. seems to me the simplest thing in the world um, <laughs> I, I would have thought I and mean, if they ask for help the adult will obviously give yeah. them help yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and the adult is proactive so yeah. we'll We'll find these young people. Um, we'll go to the spaces those young people are in, whether that you know, if that's out on the street, that the, these these workers um, will work with them there. Yeah. Um, and we'll form relationships of trust because, generally speaking, that's the commonality of all these young people, whether in um, you know Bracknell or Bangalore or something something alliterative like that. Um, generally as i say they've been let down by adults they should have been able to rely upon mm. and that's broken down trust uh, understandably so they don't trust adults so just telling putting more people in their lives telling them what to do is unlikely to be successful mm. sometimes it will sometimes they're just looking for an opportunity to go to school or get a job or whatever but for many, it's um, that's not going to work. And, and what's going to change things is these young people deciding they want to change stuff um, and working with them to give them identify what opportunities there are and 
um, help them access those opportunities. So, so we we look for three things. One is that these young people are safer, uh, that they have access to services, because lots of things that we take for granted for our children are not available on the street. Mm -hmm. They have to. Um, so it's about giving them access. I mean, in, in developing countries, you can't get healthcare services without and some form of identification and lots of kids don't have IDs. Um, so we can help them get IDs so they can get into hospital. Mm -hmm. um, even with the ID, they turn up without shoes, they won't let them in because they don't like them, so we help them get, get into, into hospitals or in, transition into schools, all those sorts of things. Um, but the core of it is is getting these young people to believe in somebody helping them, mm -hmm. which means that that person has to believe in those young people. So that requires a relationship of trust, which is real and strong and non-judgmental mm -hmm. and honest and empathetic. And um, so that's what all we do. That's we, we help find more people to help and get into the lives of the young people and help them mm. in, in whatever way works for them. So that's that's what you do. And you mentioned earlier that your former colleagues say to you, how do you afford it? And how do you figure out what to do? Mm -hmm. Basically, how do you know what to do? So we've heard your story, but what this this will be my last question. And I, Somebody who's coming up to retirement or perhaps has already retired or in their 70s, but they don't know what to do. And they've got great skills and they've got an, ama they've got an amazing network of connections that they've built up over a 30-year career. And suddenly they stop working because they reach a certain age and society expects them to stop. They're sitting around wondering what to do. How do you work out what to do? So how? What would you suggest? Um, well, I think you... I think it's changing actually already as I I think there are more and more people who are aware of well there are more and more people who have to keep working um, well uh, sure because they're living longer in the need yeah, yeah and they need to pay for health care so all those things yeah, um, yeah. and there I think there is as I say that perhaps there's a great growing recognition of the value of just having been there for a long time Know, never take out any judgment how good or bad people are but as exactly as you say you've got loads of experience loads of contacts yeah so we have a um an advisory council so we have a board as a charity when everybody does mm -hmm. and we have an advisory council which is just a group of people who are experienced in different things whether it's marketing or international development or training or stuff like that and um we just ask them can you help us a sort of grapple with challenges we come across how do we deal with this and uh, or do you know people who can help us deal with this um, and obviously fundraising is one thing but it's mostly about expertise in different areas and it's extraordinary that you can go to somebody uh, who and, and I, I do remember it's a very specific example where um, a young person was um, representing company and they were in the sort of PR communication world and um, we got an opportunity to meet the founder and we had 10 minutes with him and in 10 minutes he solved the problem it was extraordinary because he'd been there a million times before so 
we sat there and this person what, the, what was the problem it, it was about conveying a an image of uh, actually the consortium for street children at that time which is yeah. another organization we we're involved in and um it was about how can you um uh, yeah how can you convey this idea that they're a voice for street children and lots of organizations and he um he came up with an answer which was a quote sign in the middle of a c which is their logo and he and he did it um within 10 minutes because he had i don't know 30 years experience and right and and a way of thinking um, which made him good at what he did, which is presumably why he ran this organization that was helping us. Yeah. And so I think that recognizing the value of what you have is really important. Now, obviously, I'm in the charity sector, so we're graspers and we'll shamelessly exploit anybody who offers to help, <laughs> obviously. But in any sphere, I think that the experience has enormous value and the question is how do you find an opportunity to use it mm. and because it's really rewarding you know i the only thing i've you know i've worked apart from painting houses um it's all been about raising money so when i got into charity sector the only thing i could do was raise money and at least initially not so much now um uh we were incredibly s successful at that and that's enormously rewarding and suddenly you think well Actually, I'm pretty good at this. I've been yeah. doing it for 30 years, and yeah, that's that's value. And 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 there are lots of people who aren't good at it, and lots of people I can offer that skill to. Um, and as I say, I'm in the charity sector, so there are loads of people out there who need that kind of skill. So um, I, I I think it's going back to the. I had no idea what I was going to do. Mm. but I kept looking at opportunities and there were various other things that I was looking at when I retired but it was about using my yeah, my experience I wouldn't go as far as saying skills but maybe a bit of skills as well yeah. um, and, and perhaps there's an element Street Invest, when it does its training we do a skills, um, knowledge and attitudes training and I think all three are important. And actually, I think we should throw the attitudes into it. It's about what your values are. Mm. And so that's going to lead you to certain places. So it led me out of investment banking and it led me into the charity world, which for me is great. I really enjoy it and I, I enjoy working with young people. Mm. And I, you know, it's a great, great enormous, just pleasure in just seeing these young people they are great. So um, if you take a little bit of stock of what your skills are and what your knowledge is and where your attitudes are going and values are going to take you, yeah. maybe that Just opens up a few times. Jot yeah. it down. Yeah. I don't think I ever did, but, um, no, sure. but you, you know, mentally jotting it down and where, where is that going to take you? But I think there are lots of opportunities now. I think that people are changing in the view that you know, we have to assume... Can, can I go on? Mm -hmm. When I was, I think it was somewhere around 60, the oldest lady in the United Kingdom, who was 112, got a new hip. And I thought, she's probably not got a new hip because she's not doing anything. She's obviously active. 
that's why she's getting a new hip. So she's 112 and she's active enough to need a proper hip. Right. And at that stage, it was rough, she was roughly 50 years older than me. Yeah. And I'm 60 and I'm retired and I'm thinking next move is death, more or less. You know, you're in that mo mindset about yeah. winding down. Yeah. And she's 50 years older than me getting a new hip. Yeah. And that's more than my adult life. Yeah, potentially you've still got the majority of your adult life to live. Exactly. Right? So I shouldn't be retiring. I should be training to be a doctor. Well, surgeon, possibly not. You're a bit shaky now, but <laughs> eyesight dimming. But there must be things. You know, a journalist, uh, I don't know, whatever, or, or a charity worker. Or you know, a teacher. Or, or a teacher. Yeah. And suddenly you th uh, it just made me think. Yeah. Uh, optimistically, perhaps. I was in an optimistic frame of mind. <laughs> My life is actually just beginning. Yeah. You know, I've got more left yeah, yeah. than I had when I left university and started painting houses in I South Wales. I could sell a flipping load of crisps in the next uh, uh, How three many decades? crisps can I sell now? Yeah. Yeah. So and and the insurance on the van will be much cheaper. All those good things that you yeah, don't think of. That's right. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, you could have a van to sell crisps, haven't you, if you're in South Wales? I suppose. You yeah. know, going from pub to pub. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, Derek, got cheese and onion. Prawn cocktail. Yeah, I don't do it. I only do the meat flavours. So, yeah, we've come round in a kind of a big circle now. We're back to crisps. But thank you very much for the benefit of your wisdom today and i hope it makes people think take stock and think about what they might do for the next 50 years for the next 450,000 of their million hours duncan ross thank you very much thank you. that was duncan ross in conversation with mike mcdowell street invest provides a trustworthy and reliable adult to talk to homeless or street connected children in 20 countries, including the UK. You can learn more about the amazing work that they do at streetinvest.org. Our aim at Street Invest is to put a trustworthy adult into the lives of street children so that they can support them in creating the most positive paths for their lives in the future. We work around the world, working on the street with the children where they are. For such a large group of children, the amount of funding available is tiny. Really, the funding that keeps organisations like Street Invest going comes from individual donors. Street children are the most abused, neglected, violated children, yet they are also the most resourceful, responsive and resilient children that we could have the honour of working with. For more information or to make a donation, visit streetinvest.org.